Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say two things. First, unless anyone on Tatter says that they are speaking on behalf of any particular organization or group, you should assume that each person speaks for themselves and themselves alone. I always want to point that out to avoid misunderstanding. The second thing that I want to say is thank you. Thanks to each of you who offers financial support for Tatter through Patreon, but more generally, whether you do that or not, thanks for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. With all that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. Since I was a boy growing up in Arkansas, I've been a fan of college sports. It began with the love of college football, rooting for the Arkansas Razorbacks. Every Saturday in the fall, whether they were in Razorback Stadium in Fayetteville or their second home, War Memorial Stadium in Little Rock, I loved hearing the fans call the Hogs. And I loved watching the coaches, Lou Holtz and then Ken Hatfield, as they prowl the sidelines, overseeing the passes and the runs, the touchdowns and the interceptions. And then, at 22, I left Arkansas to move to Columbus, Ohio for graduate school at the Ohio State University. In the friendly confines of Ohio Stadium, along with about 100,000 other fans all dressed in scarlet and gray, I found my new love, Buckeye football. I watched John Cooper prowl the sidelines as he led... Joey Galloway, Sean Springs, Mike Vrabel, Eddie George, and more. And when I wasn't watching the Buckeyes, I was watching other teams in the Power Five conferences. That's the Atlantic Coast Conference, the Big Ten, the Big Twelve, the Pac-12, and the SEC. Or I was watching NCAA men's basketball, especially during March Madness. And I wasn't alone. Lots of other fans were watching, too. In the stadiums and the arenas on TV, on cable TV, paying to get access to ESPN, the Big Ten Network, and lots of advertisers were paying to get commercials on the air, and the networks were paying for the rights to broadcast the games. And it's all thrilling, and it's been generating lots of money. And people have been asking, should we pay the players? Would it be the right thing to do because it's fair, or somehow the wrong thing, perhaps because then they won't be amateurs anymore? This is what I recently spent an hour discussing with Rick Karcher. He's a former professional baseball player, an attorney, a member of the editorial board for the Journal of Legal Aspects of Sport, and an associate professor at Eastern Michigan University's School of Health Promotion and Human Performance. I now share a conversation in this episode, which is titled Pocket Protection. I, I played, um, you know, through, you know, college baseball was my sport. And then I, uh, went on to the, uh, Atlanta Braves organization for a few years. And so where, where did you go to college? Uh, well, my undergrad, I went to U of M Dearborn and yeah. then, uh, you know, so then I ended up signing, uh, after, uh, playing some junior college baseball. And so were you triple A, double A, single A in the uh, Braves organization, a mixture of those? Uh, I got up to high, high single A ball, which, 
would have been the Durham Bulls at that time. You remember the movie? Indeed. Um, yeah, I was uh, I was not in the movie, but um, yeah, that that was the level that I played at. And then I was on the Double A roster in spring training of '93, and then I I hung up the cleats at that point. It's it's a job, and when you're playing, you're you're it's stressful. Um, you're you know you have to perform every day at a very high level. Um, you know, I, I think there's there's this perception that you know, oh, well, you're just you're having fun and you're getting, you know, paid to play a game. Um, wow, I wish I could do that, <laughs> you know. Um, and, but but when you're in it and you're living it, um, you, you know, are experiencing the highs and lows in what you're doing. When you're playing well, you're, you're feeling on top of the world. And when you're not playing well, um, you know, it's, it's very, you know, very stressful trying to trying to find a way out of it how to how to get back on top of your game so um i decided to hang it up in you know like i said in 1993 just because i sized up that i wasn't going to uh wasn't likely going to make it to the major leagues uh, at the point in time and and at the level that i was at the age i was at and the level i was at um so i i left and went on to law school and where where'd you go to law school? Uh, Michigan State. Okay. You do law that connects with sports, um, and so how how did that uh, happen? Like, did you know when you went into law school that you were going to focus on sports related law, or did that interest emerge later? I did not know uh, when I started law school uh, what I wanted to do, um, and. I mean, I took a sports law class in law school, um, you know, and then I, after I graduated, I, I went to work for a large uh, commercial law firm in Detroit um, and did, you know, corporate work, transactional work, and, you know, all that, all that boring contract stuff <laughs> with businesses. But, uh, you know, that I did that for a few years, made partner. And, um, during that time frame, I, I started, uh, representing athletes and, you know, not necessarily as an agent, um, but in their, in their business dealings, um, repre- I represented some athletes in litigation matters. And towards the end, I was teaching right before I left the firm, I was teaching as a, uh, as an adjunct professor, teaching sports law actually at uh, Michigan State and, it really sparked my interest in getting into academia full time. So, you know, I pursued that and uh, taught at a, a law school down in Florida for 10 years and was teaching primarily sports law as well as um, torts and uh, some business classes down there. And then came back, wanted to always get back to Michigan, you know, where I grew up. And so I, I'm currently at Eastern Michigan University in the uh, sport management program here. So the primary reason that I reached out to you was because of a recent court decision uh, in Alston versus NCAA, where Judge Wilkin, uh, Judge uh, Claudia uh, uh, Mm -hmm. Wilkin, uh, Mm -hmm. handed out a decision in Alston versus NCAA. And uh, my sense of uh, of the crux of that is that 
Whereas prior to that decision, there were caps on the grant in aid. Uh, uh, so the scholarship money that could be provided to uh, uh, scholarship athletes in the NCAA. But uh, the crux of this decision is that those caps uh, uh, have been ruled an antitrust violation and uh, are no longer permitted. Am I right about that or am I wrong? Am I missing some key details? <laughs> uh Sorry, I'm, I just chuckled because it's um, it's a complicated case. You know, I, I think you have to start with uh, Judge Wilkins' ruling in the O'Bannon decision um, okay. because Judge Wilkin, with with that case, um, you know, a few years ago, uh, ruled that college athletes, and for purposes of our discussion today, we really should be focusing on. Uh, FBS football players in the Power Five conferences, and uh, you know men's basketball players in Division One. Uh, in other words, the commercialized sports is really what we're what we're talking about here. Um, th- that she ruled uh, in O'Bannon that that players could uh, legally, uh, or that I should say the NCAA couldn't legally prevent schools from paying players up to $5,000 a year if they wanted to. Okay, it wasn't, wouldn't be mandatory. It was just that if schools wanted to, they could pay players individually on an individual basis up to $5,000. That got a, that went up to the an appeal to the federal court of appeals, the ninth circuit. And the court there said, uh, Wait a minute here. Um, that's not going to work uh, because this is a product called amateur sports, and that money that you're talking about, five thousand dollars, and I should have said in relation to, you know, the use of their their names, likenesses, and images. That's what that money was going to be for—an extra five thousand dollars a year. Uh, that money that you're talking about is not tethered to education, and because you know, NCAA produces this product of amateur sports, college sports, um, any money that, that they would be entitled to receive should be tethered to education. So then, um, so they struck that down and that's why they don't receive that money today. Uh, so now the Austin case comes along and, um, it's a similar antitrust case. It's, it's slightly different claim. But the, the gist of it is, is that Claudia Wilkin was the judge again in this case, same court. And she ruled that, well, yeah, this is an antitrust violation, but, um, and she needed to now today, she doesn't want to get overruled again by the Ninth Circuit, who said that expenses need to be tethered to education, any money that players would receive. She ruled that it's an antitrust violation to the extent that uh, players receive money that isn't tethered to education. <laughs> so, so what she's ultimately saying is, is that, that this ruling is saying that the NCAA member schools uh, cannot uh, prevent you know, schools from paying players extra money that is as long as it is tethered to tethered to education. So, so, and 
maybe this is all going to be moot if she's overruled by the Ninth Circuit, but let's just, for sake of argument, suppose she's not. Uh-huh. In, in, in the plainest language uh, that you can uh, offer us, what, what's the impact going to be? If, if I'm, if I'm uh, an athlete in one of those Power Five conferences playing football, if I am at uh, a high-revenue-producing uh, basketball program. So let's say I'm at Duke, I'm at Louisville. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. what's, what's the impact of this going to be on me? Well, the impact is that the, the ruling would say that schools would be permitted to pay you uh, an extra amount above the scholarship. When we say scholarship, we're referring to grant and aid, and you use that term, and that is the correct term, a grant and aid. Um, grant aid means um, tuition, room and board, and books. Mm-hmm. And as well as as well as they can currently give cost of attendance money, which is you know varies based on uh, each school. Um, it's a it's a federal uh, determination in terms of how much the cost of attendance is at each school. So that would be you know roughly a couple thousand dollars that they that they can also receive currently. But this would be then additional money on top of that that an individual school would be able to give to a player as long as it's tethered to education. Now what? You know what that looks like uh, in terms of who knows is it a you know is a computer you know here's a you know here's money to go buy you know uh, a laptop computer uh, you know because you need it for class is that tethered to education well arguably yes I I you know but, but I don't know where that ends I don't know what tethered to education means and it would seem to me and I'm not a lawyer so tell me if this is crazy but uh, a friend of mine went to Iowa State names Iowa and I would imagine that. At a university in Iowa, one can make a case that you need a car. That like it, there's not like public transit. Uh, I'm assuming mm-hmm. the Ames does not have anything like Chicago or New York public transit. Mm-hmm. So to get around, you need a car. So could someone mm-hmm. actually make an argument that that's an educational expense? The argument could be made, yes. And so the question is, you know, what does this mean? And really, it's a question. It's a really a question for the Ninth Circuit. What did the Ninth Circuit mean when they said that back in the O'Bannon case? So, so my personal opinion of this is that Judge Wilkin is saying here, okay, you're using this fancy language, but now you tell us how this is supposed to work. <laughs> you know, I mean, if, you know, in other words, it's really it's really raising the question. You know, where what does amateur sports really mean? <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, where what is that cutoff, and why? <laughs> you know what is the cutoff in terms of what a player is permitted to receive uh, from a school, and, and you know when and when does it cross the line, and no longer you're no longer an amateur. Um, it's a very very difficult question to answer. If I recall correctly, at one point you noted that the, the, the amateur. Uh, as in amateur sports, it's not a legal term. Am I right about that? Amateurism means whatever the NCAA says it means. And, and, and in part, they like it that way because, you know, they're able to, you know, go into court in, in a lot of cases and say, well, we're a private association. We can do what we want to do. And we get to define what amateurism means. And, you know, you can't, you know, the court shouldn't be able to tell us, you know, what we decide amateurism means. And it's really been, it's really been a narrative, okay, that that's been created, um, and it goes back to the 1960s. Uh, the the NCAA 
created the term student athlete um, for for a they had a reason behind it, and this is not this is not disputed. Um, players were filing workers' compensation claims, and judges were starting to rule in their favor because they were looking at whether a college athlete is an you know meets the definition of an employee under the under the law and you know the ncaa started a a pr campaign telling all their media people and information directors and they revised all the provisions in their their manual um using the term student athlete because they wanted to essentially deny players the right to uh, be treated as employees. So, you know, in other words, to be recognized as an employee under the law, like everybody else in society would be. And it actually worked. <laughs> I mean, the, we, we, to this day, uh, you know, call college athletes, student athletes. Um, part of the, part of the reason for that, using the term student athlete is to emphasize the educational aspect of it because, um, you know, you look through, through court rulings as well as decisions at the NLR, NLRB level, the National Labor Relations Board, you know, they were grappling with whether student assistants, research assistants, graduate assistants, uh, you know, whether they are employees by definition of the law. And, you know, there's, there was this, notion that well they're what they're doing is primarily educational these research assistants and student assistants they're, even though they're getting paid it's they're students and so what what they're really doing it's not primarily economic it's primarily education what they're doing so you know it's called the primarily students rationale so so you know the focus on student 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 is something that that has been important for the NCA to do uh, from a legal standpoint, uh, in facing numerous challenges, uh, you know, throughout the years, you know, and they, another another key history point here is, is in the mid '80s when when the Supreme Court, you know, ruled that they, the NCAA couldn't restrict uh, schools from broadcasting their games, uh, however much they wanted to. So, the power schools like Alabama, Georgia, uh, you know. Florida, they all wanted to be able to license or you know broadcast as many games to networks as they as they possibly could so that they could make more money. Well, the NCAA was trying to restrict them from doing that, and the Supreme Court said you can do that as much as you want. So that was a key historical point because it it essentially opened up the box to commercialization beyond imaginable right so if you tell we got you know we've got cable tv starting at this time um and more money being thrown around through broadcast rights sponsorships advertising um and then we get into it just kept kept escalating you know annually what what they did about it then, because of the cur- the criticism that was being launched at that point about, hey, why are you making all this money? You know, in a college sports context, they, the NCAA, changed the narrative to say, okay, and I and I remember it, you know, back in 
you know, the late Miles Brand, who was the former president of the NCAA, mm-hmm. um, his speech in 2006, he delivered this huge, long <laughs> speech about the collegiate model of athletics. Okay. So let me, in other words, let me tell you all what the college model of athletics is. And it consists of, we are a business. We are a, we are not for profit institutions that need to generate as much revenue as we can in order to uh, meet our expenses as a responsible institution. Um, in other words, we sh- it's purely acceptable, entirely acceptable for us to make a ton of money and, oh, by the way, okay, and this is a short, simple sentence, and it sticks. Amateurism defines the participants, not the enterprise. Okay, now that 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 narrative right there, then you know, basically saying, "Oh, okay, I get it now." Okay, this is a you can make as much money as you want and pay your coaches as much as you want and profit off of the players because the players are amateur, the enterprise is not. So I, you know. And we accept that now, you know, so in, in many ways we, we do, we accept the narrative. So I, w- I want to talk about uh, that narrative and, and where I want to go is actually informed by an article that you published in 2013 uh, in which you, uh, well, the title is the battle outside of the courtroom principles of amateurism versus principles of supply and demand. And, and you lay out what you considered, at least at the time, three viable legal claims that you thought that these student athletes could potentially um, make in uh, challenging the restrictions that the NCAA uh, imposes mm-hmm. on their right to compensation. And one of the, I want to home in on one of the three, and I think in a way you've already begun talking about this, and that is, as you put it, uh, unjust enrichment and the licensing of broadcast rights. Can you talk mm-hmm. briefly about what you meant there? Yeah, um, the the claim of unjust enrichment is a, is a common law claim. Um, it's actually a state state claim, um, but it it really hits the nail on the head in terms of what's going on here. You know, in other words, uh, huge profits generated at the expense of people. Uh, you know, off of, you know, when we, when we think about amateurism, you know, you often hear how, you know, they're, they're, uh, profiting off of the backs of the players, you know, um, and that's really what unjust enrichment is getting at. It's saying, okay, if, you know, what is just here? What is just compensation? Um, I analogize it to the professional model. Um, and there's there's a whole history there in the professional leagues where, um, you know, players because they're unionized and they negotiate a CBA with with the league, they they're essentially getting uh, collective bargaining agreement. Correct. Yes, they're they're essentially getting their fair share of the broadcast revenue. Okay, so yeah. they, so they're getting that in in the collective bargaining agreement. So there's there's a there's a fair deal that's reached there. Um, and so what you, you know, obviously 
we don't have that in college sports. But but to the point here is there's case law that that suggests that um, if you didn't have that collective bargaining agreement in place where they negotiated the the broadcast rights revenue in the context of a union relationship, that um, that would be um, they would have a claim, you know, for that broadcast rights revenue in, in various ways, various state law claims to that. And so, you know, sort of like the work for hire. I don't know if you ever heard of the the work for hire doctrine. Um, no. You know, you know, let's say let's say an employee working for some company uh, is um, developing some some source of revenue for the company in the form of intellectual property. Let's say, right? So, so they maybe they're working on they're working for you know Coca Cola and they're working on the on the secret formula for Coke, um, or or maybe a tech company, Google. Okay, would be the better example today. Uh, so you know they're working on something for Google. Um, you know, do they have uh, any claim to that? intellectual property okay so the answer is no because they're they're being paid for their work in creating that intellectual property okay so the the compensation in other words that, that they're getting uh, precludes them from being able to bring have any rights to that to that intellectual property so you can you can analogize that here with college players you can say well the broad they are the product they are creating the broadcast which is an intellectually pro, intellectual property right that that schools have right to license that the live broadcast of the game uh, the live game itself in which the players are performing in that game you know you could argue they are working to create um, some very valuable intellectual property rights for these universities um, so you know it sort of fits it into if they're not um, being compensated for that work uh, as they should be then in theory they should have a, a claim uh, you know for that unjust uh, enrichment but but what of the what of the objection that hey as I've heard some people argue they're getting a, a four-year college degree paid for. Isn't that adequate mm -hmm. compensation? Well, I mean, I don't. I the, the conversation always is that what is what is the adequate compensation? And I've never really understood how we talk about this. I mean, adequate compensation is determined based upon an agreement between the parties. It's determined based upon competitive forces. Um, market forces um, to try to talk about what you know whether athletes are receiving you know fair compensation via their their grant aid. I mean, in other words, it's not for us to decide that. Wait, that's not how that's not how society works. <laughs> we we don't talk that way in any other context in any other industry. We don't we don't allow people who are not part of the deal, if you will, part of the relationship to, to, to determine and dictate what, what an appropriate level of, of compensation is for somebody. So I, it, you know, I, that's just my initial reaction to you saying that. I think, I think the answer is that they're not getting what they would um, otherwise get. Okay. So, I mean, if you want to think about it as a whole collectively, um, you know, if, 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 
if the professional players are receiving roughly 50% as a whole, as a whole, collectively players are receiving roughly 50% of the broadcast revenue. And in college, um, if you look at, at the commercialized sports level, if you want to think about it from a percentage standpoint, the grant and aid money, uh, you know, I've seen some figures where it depends on the school, you know, so uh, don't hold me to this percentage, but just to give you an idea, you know, it might be, you know, 12, per, 12 to 15%, you know, yeah. let's just say yeah. 10 to 15% of the revenue that is generated by a football program, let's say, right, is going to the players. And, and just to make sure that I'm clear, I thought that I'd seen somewhere, just as a matter of fact, that their scholarships are not four-year scholarships, but actually one-year renewable. Or, or am I wrong about that? Um, well, they used to be. Again, let's just hold our conversation here to the Power Five conferences, okay? Sure. Because the Power Five conferences are they're the players today, as we sit here today, are getting multi-year deals for the most okay. part. Uh, it did, that didn't used to be the case. Um, you know, they were renewable one-year deals. So uh, for the most part, the schools are giving these um, multi-year you know, deals. So. Okay. But I take your point, to, but you're, I take your point that even that is still perhaps less than what the, would emerge in a, in a truly competitive uh, marketplace. And, um, and I, am I hearing you and implying a bit of hypocrisy in that people are object, if people object to that, but they don't object to say Nick Saban, uh, or I'm, a, I'm an Ohio state PhD, um, until recently urban Meyer commanding the multi-year salaries they get on a competitive marketplace. Is, is, is there a bit of hypocrisy there? Is that what I hear you suggesting? Um, I don't, I don't, I don't like to use the term hypocrisy. I, I, I look at, I just look at it for what it is. And you, you have a situation where, um, what, are, what are these caps that you keep referring to the cap and grant aid? What it is, is it's a, it's a, it's an agreement among all of the institutions. Okay. Through the, so in other words, the NCA bylaws, the, the rule that says that a school can't pay a player beyond the, Grant aid, okay, full grant aid. Uh, that's an agreement to cap the value of human capital. Okay, that that's that's what that is, and we don't allow that in any other segment of society. Okay, we there's not another industry where we where we allow that unless the the people getting capped are able to enter an agreement as to what that cap is. Okay, yeah. with 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 so so. That's that's what you have, and so in order to you talk about coaches, and we touched on how much they're making now, and and it just keeps escalating every year. I wrote an article on coaches' salaries ten, ten years ago, <laughs> talking about the the industry and how they get paid and why they get paid what they do. I, I mean, I was referring to just ten years ago coaches' salaries, how egregious it was when they were making you know three million dollars or something. I was talking about. Coach Calipari making three million, and I mean, I mean, here we are today, you know, talking about ten million dollar salaries. Um, even even schools that are not even good in the Power Five, I mean, their their head coaches are making, you know, three million dollars. <laughs> yeah. So they're, they're, they're those those coaches today are making what 
you know, Calipari and, and Saban and those guys were making in 2009. Um, and then we have strength coaches today making $750,000. We have, you know, coordinators making a million. Basically, if you take coaches and the staff, a coaching staff at one school, one of these power five schools uh, are making, you know, 12, the, the, the salaries are roughly around $12 million is going just to coaches. So why is that? Okay. The, from an economic standpoint, you, you, the answer to that is, you know, a school a school is willing to pay a head coach that level of money, that ten million dollars or eight million dollars, you know, to a coach because they are able to get the unpaid labor because that is what is going to make a successful program. If you can get the best unpaid talent and we talk about we use the term labor we're not talking about just typical labor out in the world and in industry we're not talking about you know teachers and firemen and you know lawyers <laughs> we're, talk, we're talking about people who have unique skills uh they're native unique skills that are there's very few people no na- na- that native that can do native, that native and cultivated over time as well yes yeah, but but we're talking about that's right. But we're we're talking about inherent unique talents. You know whether you know the same the same with an actress or an actor, right? I mean you you're or a musician, okay? If if you you know there's a very small right uh, group of people in the world, people in the world who can who meet this definition and can uh, perform at Alabama, Michigan, Florida. Georgia, okay, the, the the top schools and the Power Five conferences. So, you know, there's intense competition for those players, intense between schools, um, you know, from a recruiting standpoint. And so, you know, the name of the game is get the best that you can get. And so the money that would otherwise be paid to those people is shifted to the pockets of coaches. So, I mean, people talk about coaches' salaries as being a um, a market rate that they're getting. Oh, well, the free market determines, you know, what they make. But I call it an artificially inflated market. I mean, I, I think that the market, the free market wage of a coach is much lower than what they're getting, the true free market rate. So, in other words, it's artificially inflated by the value of the players that they'd other that the university would otherwise have to pay to get. And just to shift a bit to a related note, for me, and I'm going to just put my cards on the table, I mean, you're preaching to the choir. Mm-hmm. Anyone who would argue for more compensation for uh, the student athletes is preaching to the choir when they talk to me because for me as an African-American man, given that at many of these schools, a disproportionate number of the players, say, on elite football teams are African-Americans. And a disproportionate 55%. Com- 55%, a disproportionate- roughly. Yeah. And uh, yeah. even though there have been some gains in terms of hiring of non-white coaches at the elite programs, am I not right that they're still disproportionately white? Oh, my gosh. Well, you're talking about maybe, well, what's the percentage? Um, I think we have 16 out of the Power 5, F- or out of FBS football coaches that you know, a couple of years ago, I think it was maybe 16 uh, coaches of color. So, you know, I don't, <laughs> I, you, I get what you're saying. I mean, you know, I think it's 88% of them are white. So, yeah, 
Yeah, just it, good point. I don't know that it's much of an argument. It's just sort of an emotional reaction that I'm going to, uh, if someone's upset that I'm getting emotional, fuck them. I mean, the, the, just to watch uh, uh, income um, or market value that is being uh, shifted away from a disproportionately black labor pool to a disproportionately white um, uh, management pool, as it were, uh, that, sure. that, tr- yeah. that troubles me. Um, no, now, yeah, I mean, it's factual, though, too. I mean, you're, in other words, we're, we're talking percentages. There's nothing, I mean, I, I appreciate what you're saying, and, and it's, you know, you're getting, you're upset about it, and it's, but it's factual, and that's what's even, that's what's disturbing. So, you know, I mean, what, what we're really, I mean, if you really want to dig down into this, um, you could take it a step further. There's some really interesting research about, um, you know, coming out more and more being done about how uh, people, fans, that is, how they feel about, you know, players, college players, you know, being compensated or not being compensated. Um, you know, and there, there's some interesting research coming out of that. The real question, why, why, do, why do people not want them compensated so much? You know? yeah. I mean, like, what is the underlying basis? Of, and we're starting to see some research of, you know, um, r- racial resentment. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, I don't know if you've, if you've read, seen much of that, um, study. I saw, on I saw one, one paper a couple of years ago. Okay. Um, you know, there's another news report that I saw where, um, of all the people surveyed, you know, they tracked the people who responded, those who were white and those who were black, um, overwhelming majority of black respond that people who are black who responded to the survey are you know tend to favor understand that they are not being treated fairly and that they you know this isn't a fair system and they should be you know compensated for what they're, for what they're worth um whereas you know um i'm a minority of the white respondents felt that way yeah. um you know it's there's and I would say I have other questions. I go like, what is, why, you know, there's the, there, there's the race aspect to it. There's, um, you know, the idea that they're not doing, uh, really work. They're really not working, you know? So, so there's like a value on what they're doing. You know, they're, they're just playing a sport. Um, you know, there are people who are working hard and they're not making meaning, you know, whatever you do, whether you're a teacher or a lawyer or whatever, you know, this, this just isn't something that, that deserves that type of, uh, you know, level of, of compensation. There, there might be, you know, other aspects to it as well. It's just, it's interesting to me because, you know, my perspective on it again is, is tends to be primarily economical. And that is, that is that, you know, you, what are they, what is the value of, these players and you know there's a a cartel that caps the value of these players um you know and and, and we're and we're just constantly drilled you know that that's okay almost you know well, I mean, well, I, I, again ahead. again if i understood your point it, it's not that it's it's not just that it's capped in capping it's sh- that value is shifted elsewhere it's sure. shifted to the pockets of the uh, coaches who are paid because they can successfully recruit that unpaid labor or underpaid labor. Yeah, absolutely. And, 
And that money also goes into, um, you know, facilities and, you know, um, huge, you know, you know, weight rooms that, you know, can, can attract these, the best unpaid talent. <laughs> so, uh, you know, why, why does, why does a school need to spend, you know, millions on a, on a weight room just for the football team that's 50 yards long that has a machine in it for every single player. I mean, you know, it, they have more money than they know what to do with, <laughs> with, the, with the amount of, that's being made, especially in football. I mean, we're talking about profit. So after they, after they pay all of their expenses, including coaches' salaries, um, after they pay that, all of their expenses, their, the football programs are profiting you know, anywhere from 30 million to, you know, upwards of 70 million. So unless I misunderstood you in that same 2013 article, uh, you suggested that uh, supply, principles of supply, of supply and demand could be catalysts mm-hmm. for change as there's an ever increasing demand uh, for a very short supply of talent, these elite programs. Uh, did I get that argument right? Or, 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 or No, that's I, right. Yeah. Talk, talk yeah, about that, right. please. The increase. Sure, the increasing demand is just purely a function of the increased revenue every year that's generated, okay, by these by these programs, okay, from all kinds of sources, right? Broad, broadcast rights are the big are the big source, but you know, licensing, sponsorships, you know, donor money, whatever, all the money that comes into college sports is increasing uh, and has been so for the most part. Um, so there's your you know your increasing demand and the the supply uh, seems to be getting more. The competition for the for the players seems to be getting more and more intense. Um, you know, in terms of uh, the competition for them. Um, you know, the amount of schools making offers um, to players and and just the following, the fans that follow all of this recruiting process and. You know, who, who are the four stars? Who are the five stars? I mean, every, the world knows who these players are when they're in high school. I mean, you know, so this, this is, there's a, a huge market for their services. And so do they have, the bottom line is this, they have incredible, incredible economic power collectively um, that they, they really, they're not, they're not, the courts are not effective or efficient in really being able to do anything about this. Okay. And so, you know, there are lots of reasons for that, but, but that we, we haven't seen it, you know, be able to do anything in the, for this issue in the court system. Um, but players, so, so, so you're, you're anticipating ahead. more collective action by players. Well, that's, that's the way it's going to change. Okay. I, you know, anticipating might, um, you know, I, I could see it possibly happening. Yes, for sure. Um, I mean, in the future, yeah. I mean, they they don't. It really isn't that difficult either. They um, the problem is 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 very complicated. I, I would say that to start, they don't realize the power that they have, and and yeah. part of that is because they constantly are being told through the legal system that you know you're not going to be able to do anything about this. Um, you know, when you, when you see court rulings that aren't really getting anything accomplished, when you see, you know, player, you know, a player or a few players at one school at Northwestern, you know, try to, uh, unionize and that 
that wasn't successful. Um, you know, but the reality, interesting thing about that is that they, and I've written about this, but, you know, arguably they are employees by definition. You know, people continuously in the NCAA can, continues to say that they're not, but, but they're, you have the, you have a very good argument that could be made that they are by definition employees. But the real issue is what good is that if you can't, if you don't exercise your, your power, right? So, you know, the way you, the way the only, they're going to have to do it themselves. They're going to have to, you know, get united and, and do something about it. But it's, it's very difficult because, you know, they are, not only is the, does the legal system tell them in so many words, Hey, you know, you really, you know, you don't have much of a claim and, and the coaches, they're under the constant control and authority yeah. under their coaches with respect to everything. They have no rights. Right. I mean, like they, you know, heck, if the coach says we're not using social media this season, um, right. you've got <laughs> apparently, you know, they can't even exercise their free speech on social media. I mean, you know, the, the list is endless in terms of, of, of that, in terms of their rights, uh, you know, not being, uh, not, not having any rights, you know, as, as college athletes. Um, but the reality is, is they have huge economic power that, that all it would take is for them to be united. You know, I mean, you just imagine this. Imagine one conference, yeah. uh, you know, the players in one conference, you know, saying we're not going to play this telling, in other words, telling their conference, we're not going to play in games uh, this fall, you know, unless we are able to work something out. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, imagine that happening. Imagine, you know, the, the broadcast revenue, the yeah. light, the broadcast contracts. Yeah, you know, like what, what, what would happen there? Well, I mean, I mean it, you it, cannot replace these people. You cannot replace them. You cannot replace the starting lineup for Alabama. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not going to happen, and it's and it, it's just, uh, and that's that's the gist of the whole thing. It, it shows you how much they're really worth um, if you just think about that you know that tells you how much they're worth um and that's the that's the only way you get something done um but you know you got to overcome the fear factor which is oh my god you know oh my gosh if i did this i'm gonna you know possibly lose my scholarship i'm gonna lose that yeah um and that's why the system will just keep going the way it is As I think through the implications of uh, this example with, um, uh, say, the, the starting uh, players or starting offense for Alabama, it, it, when you write about this, you say, like, if the starting offense decided, it just announced to Coach Saban that they were not going to play uh, at the start of the season, uh, then Alabama would not even be, as you put it, in the conversation for a national title. And in, and, mm-hmm. I, and and I think, if I recall correctly, that's in large part because the gap in talent between the starters and the second string players is pretty substantial. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess, 
I mean, I, I kept it simple in terms of just a few players. My, my yeah. point was just trying to make, you know, it doesn't even take much. I mean, so if the starting lineup did this, um, I mean, I mean, ideally an entire team would do it, but, 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 but I, I do, I, but to answer your question, I do think that they would have a hard time uh, competing without their starting lineup. <laughs> um, and, you know. So, but I mean, I guess what I'm driving at is if players uh, in um, the FBS as in the NFL, began to be compensated in some manner that was in proportion to those, what you refer to as those native skills, then you would have differing levels of compensation within a team, right? Yeah, possibly. I, possibly. I mean, I, without getting into this is the this is this is the frustrating part when you have these conversations. <laughs> you know, they everybody wants to take it to okay. Well, tell me, <laughs> tell me how much they would make and what would it look. Like? You know, would there be different layers? Of, you know, the answer to that is whatever the players decided. Okay, as as a group and, and with representation, I'm not saying you know we're not suggesting that they would sit down and you know you know negotiate a cut. They would have. They would have people representing them, uh, and it wouldn't be difficult at all if the players wanted to do this to get some top people, you know, uh, qualified people to handle this negotiation, you know, with with uh, the conference or conferences. Um, you know, it's it's so the answer to your question. I don't know what it look it would look like. It would be whatever they just they agreed upon. Um, you know, maybe, maybe everybody would get the same amount, but see what happens is that the parade of horribles happens here because then people want to go, Oh, well, well, what about title nine? What about, you know, um, you know, the non-revenue sports, what about, I mean, this is, this is the problem is that every excuse in the book is made as to why players, college players shouldn't be compensated. And they're all just excuses. Every one of them. Is, is just an excuse um, for for not, you know, I mean, the NCAA, you know, they talk about, oh, well, this would destroy, you know, consumers wouldn't be interested. We'd go bankrupt, you know, competitive balance, this, that. We wouldn't have a, they, the NCAA's response to this is, is very analogous to what you had with Major League Baseball when Kurt Flood was challenging, challenging the reserve clause, you know, in the seventies, you know, it was the same narrative. The league was saying to the players, we can't pay you all this money because, well, you know, we would go bankrupt and, you know, or, or the, the big market teams would be the only ones, you know, survive. There'd be no competitive balance. And, you know, Oh, and by the way, the fans don't want it either. <laughs> so, you know, it's all, it's all a bunch of excuses. Years ago, I got into on, on Facebook and um, um, I don't recall if it was in public comments or private messages, but I got into a frustrating argument with a friend of mine who was opposed to any sort of uh, payment in excess of mm-hmm. scholarship for student athletes. Mm-hmm. And as I've made clear, I'm a supporter of it. And if, mm-hmm. I, recall, if I recall correctly, part of his argument was uh, no one forced uh, these young people uh, into these arrangements. They knew going in full well that they were uh, not going to get more than a grant and aid to cover uh, educational expenses. And they get this uh, bonus of at least an elite programs uh, after a starter, the prospect of going pro someday and getting handsomely rewarded later. They opted in. What's the problem as long as this is a voluntary decision by them? Well, the, the short answer is it's an adhesion contract. 
Okay, so what an adhesion contract means is it it's a contract that they have no say in. It's not it's not that they that they voluntarily want to be capped, uh, that they want their value of their services to be capped. There's no other option. So an adhesion contract means that the cartel is has de- determined what the terms of the contract are, the first thing. Second thing, there's no other option available, which want to also mention what we're starting to see now from a business standpoint. Okay, if the players ultimately don't, you know, organize in some fashion uh, to make change, um, you know, ultimately competitive forces we're seeing, you know, competitor leagues uh, announcing and forming, you know, they're forming and, and paying players more, you know, the historic basketball league. I don't know how much you've, you've looked into that at all, heard about it. Um, you know, they're, they're uh, paying players 150,000, a year out of high school and paying for their their education for four years, so they're mm-hmm. gonna so they'll get so they'll get the scholarship plus one hundred fifty thousand years. And so my point is, you know, there there are disruptor competitive forces that if the NCAA uh, doesn't, I'm saying the NCAA really every time I say the NCAA, I really should be saying the Power Five because that this that that's that's where it is. That's where the money is made. And, and so, you know, if the power five wants to continue operating, you know, they, they need to be thinking about, you know, competition, uh, with respect to their business model. Um, you know, I, I, I read something the other day where Clemson, a player, football player at Clemson was talking about, uh, the XFL, which is going to be starting next a year from now, uh, 2020 that, um, you know, players, there will definitely be players who would be interested in and will transfer to the, to the yeah. XFL. You know, I, that's competition, right? That's what happens. So we, my point is we may see some change just through uh, competitive forces uh, that, that, that ultimately causes them to change their business model. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Rick Karcher for taking the time to talk with me. For more information about him, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode where there will be links to more information about Rick and also to other information related to the topics we discussed. As always, to provide feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, you can, if you're a Twitter user... Mention Tatter, the handle is at Tatter underscore rags, or you can go to iTunes and post a review. Either way, I appreciate the feedback, and in any case, thanks for listening, and be well.